It's that expectation that we are able to do it all. And there's actually research showing that Black women hold this belief that they have to be a superwoman, a strong Black woman. And a lot of that is grounded in the fact that we have this history of extremely strong women who had to overcome extremely difficult circumstances. And I know I, for one, often did not take time off from work and often did not rest because when things were hard, I would think about them and think, you have no right to be tired. Look at what they did. And what they did made it possible for you to be here, so you keep going. You're listening to What's Work Got to Do With It, your go-to resource on all things workplace safety, health, and well-being. This podcast series invites you into the conversation as we discuss how our workplace conditions like work hours, occupational stress, job safety, and other issues affect our lives at work and at home. We go into the science behind it all and talk about what we can do to reduce work-related risk and promote well-being. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupation Health Sciences and Oregon Healthy Workforce Center and is produced by myself, Helen Shuckers, Nicole Guilfoy, Sam Greenspan, and Anjali Ramesh Babu. And before we dive right in, I just wanted to say that it's so great to have continued community support as we go into year three of our podcast series. And we have listeners coming from all around the country and the world. Our top three listener areas are Portland, Oregon, and Columbus, Ohio, and Mountain View, California. We have listeners from all different continents from around the world. It's really cool to see the analytics and our growth over the years. And if you enjoy listening to our podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and subscribing to our podcast. It really helps our analytics and just for people to search for us. And if you do leave us a review with a comment, we'll definitely try our best to give you a shout out in the upcoming episodes. We greatly appreciate the community support. And right now we'll dive right into Dr. Hearst's talk. Thanks so much for tuning into another episode of What's Work Got to Do With It, our podcast here at the Oregon Healthy Workforce Center and the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences at OHSU. And today we have another talk that we will be revisiting from our 2021 Fall Symposium. In January, we released a talk from Dr. Tori Crane on supporting low-wage workers, low-wage essential workers during COVID. And we definitely had talked about highlighting another talk that was very empowering and created a lot of discussion. And today we will be hearing from Dr. Charlize Hurst, and she will be speaking on designing flexible work to create a just economy for Black and Latinx women. And during her introduction, she did talk on many, many points of the importance of addressing this area. And she did provide us some information on what her talk was about beforehand. And I'm just going to read it out loud here. There are far fewer places that offer Black and Latinx women the cultural resources, economic opportunities, and sense of safety that all employees value. They are often overrepresented in low-wage service roles, often performing the essential work that has kept the United States running through the COVID-19 pandemic. Even as they have been lauded as heroic, even as their communities have been battered by the pandemic, they have been lacked time off and flexibility to care for ailing loved ones, children learning remotely, or even themselves. These women could benefit substantially from more flexible working conditions, yet without careful attention to the needs and preferences of Black and Latinx women, flexible work could also deepen their disadvantage by, for instance, reducing access to developmental and relationship-building opportunities, 
And overall, this session is going to explore how workplaces need to have flexible workplace policies and have also an advancement in racial equity during this time in the critical roles of the Black and Latinx women that play on our economy as a whole. And more than before, it is more clear and needs to be discussed. And this session from the Fall Symposium talk discusses thoughtful, flexible work policies that could advance racial equity uh, during this trying and stressful times when critical roles that Black and Latinx women play in the economy and it's become more clear than ever. So let's dive right into this talk and we'll see you on the other side. Charlize is an assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame's Mendoza College of Business. She teaches social entrepreneurship and social innovation. Her current research focuses on how to build an equitable workplace in the context of rapid changes to the economy and workplace. She is also a co-developer of the, the Just Wage Framework and Tool, which consists of a set of seven criteria for determining the justness of a wage. The tool and framework are designed to encourage robust cross-sector conversations about what truly constitutes a fair wage and how to extend fair wages to all workers. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to talk to you guys today about, about this. It's a, it's a topic that's close to my heart um, and I'm really appreciative. My biggest takeaway or the thing I liked most was her saying that it's not about flexibility. It's about changing the way we think about work. And I actually, I had to add the word, I added the word flexibility because I felt like, well, I built it as a flexibility talk. This talk was supposed to be about how flexibility policies can contribute to racial equity. So there should be some flexibility in here. And I kind of scrambled towards the end to put some more flexibility stuff in the presentation. But really, initially, when I thought about it, and the more I looked at the issue, I realized that flexible work policies are not really the goal. The goal is quality work. And to get there, we need to think less about what policies to institute and more about what our mindset is, our mental models. So I'm going to get to that a little later, talking more about mental models a little later. And that's really key for me. But I just want to kind of establish some backdrop at first. This is, like I said, it's about it's about how we can reach racial economic equity. That's really what this is about, particularly for Black and Hispanic women who are disproportionately represented among a low-wage workforce, but across the socioeconomic spectrum face some challenges that are sort of unique. And I come to this with a lot of passion, even though I talk a lot of data and policy during this presentation, this for me is very personal. So undergirding that data is the desire to, to send a message that is based on my own personal experience of COVID, since that's sort of the theme of the symposium, my own personal experience has been pretty, pretty intense, as I'm sure many of yours have. And particularly as a parent, many of you have experienced what it's like to be a parent, having your children at home and going through all of the uncertainties and the remote schooling, all of that. And I don't know about you, but I am not fully recovered. <laughs> uh, and I read about a study, a survey that found a few months ago that 
black people are more likely to have known, I'm sure this is true for Hispanic people as well, because their communities were very hard hit. Both communities were disproportionately affected, as I'm sure most of you heard, by COVID. And so more of us know someone who was impacted. I was sitting next to a woman on a plane a couple of months ago. She was a white woman and she she started talking about how she doubts the government's numbers because she doesn't know anybody who's who's had COVID and she doesn't know anybody who's died from COVID. And I was like, oh no, I believe those numbers because I was hearing about COVID, you know, people dying from COVID almost every week. And I still am at a time when we're supposed to have emerged from the, the crisis or at least many people are pretending that we have emerged and acting like we've emerged. I'm still hearing about it, a close friend of mine lost his mother last week and um not last week last month and ironically just a little over a year before that he had been sick and at death's door from COVID as well and one commonality in their experiences was that neither one of them was able to get a bed in a hospital and with her they sent her home with an IV port and morphine so even at this point these communities are facing serious impacts, and I've seen it across the socioeconomic spectrum in my community. And that is on top of just the usual stressors of, uh, of life. You know, I mean, last year we also had George Floyd, we had Breonna Taylor, we had Ahmaud Arbery, and it was very intense. We had a very tense political environment that often felt unsafe and certainly inhospitable. And it was actually not that much of a shift for me from what life had been like for the years prior, because even though George Floyd was a wake-up call for many people, it wasn't for me. I had my wake-up call many years ago. I think my biggest wake-up call was Tamir Rice, whose name never gets spoken. He was a 12-year-old boy who was shot by police. If you look at the video, he was shot as soon as they drove up. He was playing with a toy gun, and someone had reported that they saw someone with a gun in a park. He wasn't even given any warning. And that shook me because I have a black son. And every time I go to work, the day after or the day of hearing about something like that, it's tearing at my heart. And I look around and everyone else seems just normal, like everything is normal. When I heard about the Charleston massacre, I was at work. I saw it on the news. I was at a, it was at a restaurant with a colleague and I saw it on the news had no impact on him whatsoever. I was stunned, I'm from South Carolina, so it really had an impact on me. So this is a unique aspect, I believe, of being black and going to work, uh, being a person of color and going to work. You are carrying into that workplace a very different experience. And then later in my talk, a lot of my focus is going to be on low-wage women, low-wage black and Hispanic women, Many of those women are single mothers or they're the main earners in their household. That also is very personal for me as the daughter of a single mother. And uh, so I, I also present this data on her behalf and on behalf of uh, my cousin, who I call my aunt, who was like a mother who worked as a domestic during the day and as a, a juvenile justice attendant at night. And my mother's friend, who I call aunt, who worked in a dry cleaners and took care of both of her grandchildren from infancy to adulthood. This data is, uh, is meant to uh, support a message that I hope will shift the way that we think about 
this issue and help us to move forward. During the coronavirus outbreak, like I said, uh, Black and Hispanic families were disproportionately impacted. You can see here that they faced greater hardship in terms of being able to pay bills, uh, getting being able to obtain food, pay for their housing, and had to use money from savings and retirement more often just to get the bills paid. There is a you know a substantial wealth gap among black um, black and white black and white people, and I'm the presentation is meant to highlight the issues of both black and Hispanic women. There is more here about black women because there is more data available about, about black women, but they're also not mutually exclusive categories. There are many um, black women who are Hispanic. So, um, and there is research showing that skin color can be more, actually more predictive and that black Hispanics actually have worse outcomes and that their outcomes are closer to those of African-Americans, black people who are not identified as Hispanic. So I'm actually talking about both. <laughs> you know, these families, even at the higher levels of the income ladder, you may be making more money, but you have less inherited wealth, you have less opportunity to acquire assets because of less in inherited wealth. And also, you may also be helping out family members a lot more than your white peers. And that hinders your ability to accumulate wealth. Overall, Black and Hispanic women face a bigger pay gap than white women. They make less money than both white women and white men. And there are U.S. there are race gaps in marriage by education as well. So again, illustrating that there are differences across the socioeconomic spectrum and that even Black women at the higher earnings, at the higher end of earnings, face certain unique challenges that influences the relationship between their work and their life you see that Black women who are um, well-educated or have a bachelor's degree are less likely to be married. This ties back, I promise, to work-life issues. They also are less likely to be married to men who, um, who are higher earners. Black men have actually been very stagnant in terms of their earnings as a percentage of white, what white men make. They have not narrowed the gap very much since the 1960s. And so black women are more likely to end up married to men with less education and lower earnings. Now, why am I talking about black women in marriage? I'm talking about that because black women, because of the lower wealth, because of the lower pay, because of being more likely to be married to somebody who's less educated, they have less, for one thing, opportunity to take time off work. It's more costly. There's nothing, there's not as much to draw on in terms of savings. There's not a uh, someone in the household who's a higher earner who can carry the load while you're out. They have much less flexibility, not just in terms of hours and so forth, but in their just their simply their capacity to be able to forego income, and also to slow themselves down on the career track, uh, and potentially facing career disruptions that they won't recover from, particularly considering that they already are behind in terms of pay. So these sorts of kind of macroeconomic factors play a great deal into, into the ability of Black women to manage work and life because it impacts who, how, how much support they have at home, and it impacts just the financial base that they're working from in making those decisions about what to do, how to manage the work and family issues. So in the context of COVID, higher earning Black women have had the opportunity 
just like many white collar white employees to work from home. And there's been all this discussion, you know, whether we should return to work and whether remote work is better. And we've heard, as this chart shows, that most workers want to be able to continue to work remotely at least part of the time. But this one survey found that Black knowledge workers are substantially more likely to prefer to work at home part of the time. And one thing that really stood out for me here, even though the numbers are low in an absolute sense, there was a higher sense of belonging among, reported among Black knowledge workers who worked at home. And we often hear that, uh, we hear the opposite, that, that workers feel more lonely. They feel less included when they work from home. They're not surrounded by their uh, colleagues. But there's actually research finding that Black employees don't benefit as much from social, closer social relationships with their colleagues as white employees do. It can be difficult to share your life with people who may not understand the realities of your life. And that goes back to what I was talking about earlier with just the sense of, of unease coming into work, thinking about these things that were happening in the world that impacted my community, but also just smaller things. Um, we're often, we often feel that we have to wear a mask at work. We have to sort of become a different person. And so when we, when we leave, we want to change. We want to be ourselves. We want to be um, that person who we want to be comfortable, right? So we may prefer remote work simply because we don't have to wear that mask as much. And we don't have to feel that sense of discontinuity between who we are at home and who we are at work. Another aspect of being Black in the workplace and that ties into this whole issue of remote work is where we live. And this is something that's never surfaced, I, as far as I've seen, in conversations about work and family. Uh, so there's data showing that most people end up living in neighborhoods that are predominantly same race. But there are different reasons why people end up living in same, predominantly same race neighborhoods. Um, Black people end up living in predominantly same race neighborhoods largely because of housing discrimination, while white people end up living in same race neighborhoods because that is where they look for homes. That's where they actually want to live more often. So we are limited because of issues like housing discrimination and comfort, wanting to be able to drop that mask when we're not at work. Uh, we're limited, more limited in where to live. Right. And there are certain cities that are more attractive to black people simply because we have a critical mass there. And there's a professional, you know, there's a critical mass of professional people and barbershops and churches and places where you feel comfortable. How does this tie into remote work? If you look at the map of the United, a map of the United States and median annual earnings across the country, you see that annual earnings are lowest. In the southern states, these are the states where Black and Hispanic workers tend to be most concentrated. So they live in areas where they're likely to earn less money, and the cost of living in those areas is lower too. So that may not in and of itself be a problem. Where the issue comes in is that the higher paying jobs, where the higher paying jobs are elsewhere, they're in places where Black people don't necessarily want to live, Hispanic people don't necessarily want to live because we don't have that critical mass there. I saw an article a few months ago about Thumbtack, the company Thumbtack. 
they're an online, they're one of those um, companies that is kind of like a TaskRabbit sort of company. They're fairly new, but they hired a head of DEI who pushed for the company to do to stay virtual after the pandemic because of the fact that it enabled them to uh, hire more Black people because they could hire people in cities where Black people want to live. And they designed it so that those people would not experience the negative aspects of remote work because there can be drawbacks to remote work, especially for minority employees who tend to have less sponsorship opportunities, less mentorship opportunities. They get less of that than their, their white peers in general. Remote work can exacerbate that. So the company really took a look at how they could minimize those drawbacks while at the same time uh, enabling them to recruit people from all over the country, regardless of who they were, and maintain and retain those people. And retention is a major issue. It's something that we hear about. We hear that companies are much better about hiring than they are at retaining. That's certainly the case also in academia, where um, there's much more emphasis on hiring. But if you can't retain people, you can't be a diverse organization. But this is a work-life issue. It's a work family issue as well, because you want to live where you where you feel that in cities that you feel are great place, places to raise your children. When I first came to the city that I live in or where I work now, people kept telling me this is a great place to raise kids. And what I realized that it's, is that it's a great place to raise kids who are white. And it's not a great place for my children. I was walking down the street with my children during the election once and a, a truck came by that had Trump flags on it and some men yelled out the car at us, you know, a racial epithet. It, that was not a great place to be for me and my kids. So this is very much this ability to live where you want to live and where you feel comfortable and where you feel safe is very much a work family issue. And so one final issue that I wanted to highlight in addition to the economics, in addition to the geographic considerations of black workers are the stigma and stereotypes and our awareness of those and, and the expectations that we have of ourselves that can impact uh, work family, the sort of work family dynamic. And one is the strong black woman um, kind of expectation that many of us are aware of. And it's that expectation that we are able to do it all. And there's actually research showing that black women hold this belief that they have to be a superwoman, a strong black woman. And a lot of that is grounded in the fact that we have this history of extremely strong women who had to overcome, you know, extremely difficult circumstances. And I know I, for one, often did not take time off from work and often did not rest because when things were hard, I would think about them and think you have no right to be tired. Look at what they did and what they did made it possible for you to be here. So you keep going. But there's research showing that in a way, that self-image and that ideal can have positive outcomes in terms of your uh, con contributing to your community and your ambition and your work. At the same time, it can actually have very real negative um, physical, physiological outcomes. So it's, it's a double-edged sword, but it's also really relevant to this word family issue. It's relevant to whether Black women feel even comfortable taking time off of work. And if you can combine that with awareness of the stigma and stereotypes of Black women, 
that really exacerbates the sense of not being able to take time off and not being willing to take advantage of policies that might make it seem that you're not as committed. And there's actually research showing that among uh, factors that black and white workers are concerned about, one of the factors at work that black workers are concerned about the most is making sure that their managers know that they're working. And that's much lower on the list for white workers. And I believe that does come from that awareness of that stereotype that we, we may be lazy, honestly, something that's rooted very deeply in our nation's history when you know black people had to be stereotyped as lazy in order for slavery to be even justified because you know they had to be made to work sort of so um, you know these stigmas these stereotypes can actually play a great deal into um, decisions to take advantage of work family policies and simply to take time off work and how you manage your career and there was this article this is the final thing that i want to highlight before i shift to talking about low-wage workers in particular there was an article um, by some close colleagues of mine at, at um, Harvard Business Review who discussed black workers and remote work and kind of what that experience has been like throughout COVID. And they echoed a lot of what I said earlier and what I've been feeling. And they recommended, as it says here, that managers and coworkers shift their expectations. Like Jody said earlier, uh, the ideal is equity, right? That everyone gets what they need. Everyone has the opportunity to get what they need. And in the context of COVID and the other events of the past year, as I said, Black workers were more heavily impacted. And having to show up and pretend that you weren't, that was a great deal of emotional labor. And so even though hopefully we are emerging from this period, and, and that's it's a big asterisk around that, we're emerging from this period, we're probably not emerging from systemic racism anytime soon. It's good to keep in mind for those who are designing programs that are um, meant to alleviate the work family uh, conflict of black workers and try to um, create more equity around these issues that your employees are coming to work with a different experience and sometimes an experience that affects it, not only their physical health, but their mental health, and those things need to be taken into consideration. If you're really seeking to enhance racial equity in your workplace, which a lot of organizations are now claiming uh, is, is a goal of theirs more than ever. So I want to shift now to talking about the mental models, paradigms that we are, uh, the lenses through which we're looking at these issues of racial equity and racial economic equity. And I'm very much a fan of systems thinking. Uh, and this is what, when I was thinking about what to say today, I really, I thought about, well, what would I tell my students about how to analyze this issue? And I thought, well, you would tell them to look at it through a systems lens because this issue of racial economic equity is very much a systems problem. It's very complex. It involves multiple institutions and multiple inter interdependencies, and often we don't treat it that way. And so we kind of keep ending up in the same place, having the same conversations. And I'm going to skip a lot here and go to um, and go and go to this report that dates back to 2010, and it discusses findings from a study looking at what kinds of flexibility options. Uh, companies should adopt in order to ease 
the work family issues and work life issues of low wage workers. And the findings are completely valid. I mean, they're and they're exactly the sorts of things we're still hearing should be done and sorts of things we're still hearing, sorts of challenges we're still hearing low wage workers face. That was 11 years ago. So when I when I looked at that and I looked at what's happening now in the paid leave conversation, because many of you know paid leave is back on the table, just barely. It got taken out of Biden's Build Back Better bill because uh, one senator, Joe Manchin, opposed it because of the cost. It's recently been put back in. The prospects don't look great for it and it's been pared back substantially. And even in its original form, there were serious problems with it in terms of the viability or how much it would help low wage workers. And no doubt paid leave does help low wage workers, but the degree to which it helps, it does not help as much as it could, put it like that, public paid leave policies. One reason being that if you replace uh, 80% or 90% even of low earnings, you have someone who's earning even less as they're trying to manage probably some very difficult challenges in their life. They've just had a baby, they're taking care of a sick family member, and now you know, they, they've, been, they've got 90% of a $15 wage replaced. So that to me is the biggest drawback to um, public paid leave. But we're still having this conversation and it looks like we're not gonna move forward much sooner. So, so systems thinking, one indication that you're dealing with a systems problem is when the problem is persisting despite many, many efforts to, uh, to address it and despite many, many good ideas that seem like they should work. And so before I launch into talking about the lives of low-wage workers, I also want to specify that I'm not just talking about people who are poor officially, according to the federal poverty level. I'm talking about, because that is a very low, low bar. The federal poverty level hasn't been raised in decades. I'm talking about families who are in financial distress. Uh, the United Way calls them asset limited income constrained families that larger proportions of Hispanic and black families are uh, below the Alice threshold. Substantial portions, substantial portions of the nation are below the Alice threshold, which should be troubling regardless. But black and Latino women are especially likely to work in low wage jobs disproportionate to their numbers in the workforce. And the situation is likely to persist and potentially grow worse in the future because of the highest growth jobs over the next 10 years, those jobs are disproportionately occupied by women of color, 46%, nearly half. Those jobs tend to include, those jobs include home care aides, personal aides, jobs that like home care aides are not even covered by the Fair Labor, Fair Labor Standards Act. So very, very not good jobs. Looking at the data on how COVID has affected these women, um, most working mothers who are low income didn't get paid when they took time off due to school closures last year. And many of them did, of course, have to take time off. So women who were low income were much more likely to have to take that time off without pay. Uh, of course, this has worsened probably and possibly set back racial economic equity for a good while unless we are really proactive in addressing it. I'm not sure that we will be. It's also worth noting that 
um, many children, many Black and Hispanic children live, and especially Black children live in grand families, what's being called grand families now. Um, and those are families in which grandparents are the parents. There's no parent in the household. And this is notable because these parents, these grandparents are usually still in the workforce and they're usually low wage earners. They tend to be more likely to have disability. And in the context of COVID, they were more likely to die and often did not have any sort of arrangements made for what would happen to the children once they were gone. Uh, they had much more risk from COVID. Once the kids went back to school, even their stress was not as alleviated as the stress of younger parents because now they had children going to schools where they were more likely to pick up COVID and bring it home to their more vulnerable um, grandparents. So it's really worth noting that grand families are a significant part of the picture when you're looking at low wage earners who are taking care, who are caregivers. So as I said, we haven't seen very much progress. And so when you look at this through the lens of systems thinking, one of the first things you might want to do is look at it, look at the iceberg model. And this is a tool that we use to, to move us, to encourage us to think about the paradigms and mental models that we're applying to uh, a problem that are underlying a problem. I was initially going to actually frame this entire presentation around this paradigm that I find very troubling that has emerged uh, around racial economic equity or racial equity. And many people may not realize that the civil rights movement was not strictly about anti-discrimination. It's often been, it's kind of been boiled down to that. You know, well, we, you know, the content of our character, our children will not be judged by the content of their character, but by the color of their skin. But the organizers of the civil rights movement and the organizers, in fact, a, a. Philip Randolph, whose picture you see here, is one of the key organizers. Not only that, he actually conceived of the March on Washington in the 1940s uh, because of labor issues. He was a labor leader. He founded the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was a union of black men who were car porters. And um, it was considered to be eventually a very good job because of the unionization of those workers. He formed it as a separate union because at the time the AFL and the CIO, which hadn't, hadn't joined yet, would not accept black workers. Eventually he did, they did merge into the CIO and those organizations became important allies that contributed to the March on Washington. But fundamental, economic equity was fundamental to the civil rights movement. They were not looking for uh, an equitable representation of Black people in poverty. What they were looking for was human rights for Black people. And for that to mean anything, the standard of human rights had to be set high. There has to be a higher bar. Otherwise, we weren't aspiring to much of anything for Black people. And ultimately, they knew that raising the bar for black people meant raising the bar for everyone, right? So you see here, he talks about, we have no future in a society in which 6 million black and white people are unemployed and millions more live in poverty. And that's why among the demands in the March on Washington, there were 10 demands, which many people don't know. Several of the demands, nearly half of the demands had to do with creating decent jobs, good jobs. The work was not done. Unfortunately, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, it focused on non-discrimination. That was what it enshrined, you know, 
anti-discrimination. There was nothing about economic goals. There was nothing about good jobs. There was nothing about wages in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I'm, I'm very dubious. I don't think that was an accident <laughs> because it's a lot less threatening, a lot less difficult to say, oh, don't discriminate. It's very slippery, right? We know that just even being able to detect whether discrimination is happening is very slippery. But corporate diversity programs ended up being shaped around the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I mean, they came into being initially just to for companies to be in compliance with the act. And so ultimately, the way they began to frame diversity and equity was in terms of representation. Well, Black people should be represented in the same proportions at different levels of the workforce as, you know, they are uh, at different levels of organizations as they are in the workforce. So there was an article in USA Today last month about Amazon's workforce. And because uh, Amazon and a number of other companies released their EEO data, which they're not required to do, but they released their EEO data. And the article was about was criticizing the fact that Amazon has not improved in its representation of Black and Hispanic employees at the executive level. And it looks here like they, um, they actually made quite a bit more progress than they actually did because between 2016 and now, they expanded the number of roles that are considered executive. So they just put more jobs under that label. So where they did not have any Black or Hispanic executives back in 2016, now they have like 7%, but largely because they expanded what they consider to be an executive role. But what was really notable to me from this is that 67% of Amazon's lower level workforce, the people who bring our packages and the people who pack our packages and move all those products around, the people who we hear are working under terrible working conditions, 67% of them are Black and Hispanic. And what concerns me is not only that they're not able to move up, but that those jobs are so poor in the first place. And so most of the articles you see about this issue, about um, diversity, are like the one that I saw in USA Today. They emphasize representation, as if, if we could reach 11% representation of Black people and 17% representation of Hispanics in executive levels, then we will have achieved the goals of the Civil Rights Movement and we will not have achieved that goal. We will have achieved that goal when those laborers, those people at the bottom, the 67% that are Black and Hispanic and the third that are white all have decent jobs. They all have decent wages and decent benefits. That is when we will have achieved the goal. But as our, if our paradigm is representation, then addressing the real needs of low-wage Black and Hispanic workers and actually getting to a point where um, they are able to live decent lives is, is impossible. It can't happen if the goal is simply representation. They'll just simply be represented at lower numbers, but still substantial numbers among low-wage workers. Another aspect or another paradigm, a mental model that I believe undergirds our lack of progress on this issue is the idea of deservingness. Who is deserving of a better life? And there's substantial research showing that race affects people's assessments of who deserves you know, public benefits, who deserves public policies that will lift them 
economically. And when people believe that a policy is going to disproportionately or is mainly going to benefit black people, they're less supportive. Um, and, and so this whole idea of deservingness goes to the decisions that policymakers make, probably the decisions that corporate leaders make. They're looking at the workforce, they're looking at who's down there, they don't identify with them and they hold these mental models that these people are not deserving. Perhaps going back to that stereotype of laziness that's followed black workers and Hispanic workers for decades, if not more. Um, that whole mental model of deservingness is certainly, in my mind, a piece of this. And finally, in systems thinking, you also look for archetypal patterns in the system, patterns that are maintaining the status quo of the system. Uh, and one of the more common patterns is that of drifting goals, where you know you set a goal and you see you're not reaching it, you see the gap between the goal and, and your performance, and so you lower the goal, and then you lower it some more, and you lower it some more because the solution would be too hard or take too long, and it's easier, perhaps more expedient, politically cheaper, to just keep lowering the goal. They call it the boiled frog syndrome. I'm sure most of you have heard the metaphor of, you know, if you put a frog in lukewarm water and just turn the temperature up slowly, then the frog will just stay there um, and kind of enjoy being in the water and swimming around and not realize that it's getting boiled and eventually it is boiled. So it's kind of the same thing with drifting goals. It happens so imperceptibly that we don't notice that it's happening. And I see this in the conversation around racial economic equity because, uh, and a good example of that is in the fight for 15. You know, we've really been pushing for this $15 minimum wage and it would certainly be an improvement over where we are now, but it seems to me like a drifting of goals from where we began, where the labor movement began because unions fight for a lot more than $15 than simply wages. They're looking at the entire compensation package. And yet most of the conversation about lifting, uh, lifting the floor for low wage workers now is around this $15 minimum wage. And if you look, $15 minimum wage is not a living wage in most of this country for a family with children. So this whole, um, this whole tendency to just kind of keep lowering the goal for often for political reasons, as you see in the paid leave battle, you know, well, we'll take what we can get. So um, for whatever reason, we tend to just kind of keep lowering the goal. And it's easy to lower the goal when it comes to vulnerable populations like this because they don't have a voice. You know, it's, it's elites who drive the conversation and we may be well-meaning elites, but we're elites all the same who don't necessarily have to try to live off $15 an hour you know, without any change in our compensation or benefits. And one way you know that $15 an hour is a pretty low bar is that a lot of large employ employers have been embracing it. They've been advertising it as a benefit. Hey, we pay $15 an hour. I saw uh, at Whole Foods the other day, they're advertising it. You know, they pay $15 an hour. That's where you start. Um, I'm a little suspicious when I see so many large corporations embracing that. And even as we see these corporations embracing that, we see the same employers being 
accused of uh, of worker abuses, of poor working conditions, uh, on a steady basis, particularly Amazon. I mean, they they get highlighted a lot. Amazon recently did everything they could to um, push back against the union drive among workers in their warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. Now, warehouse is predominantly, Bessemer, Alabama itself is predominantly black, predominantly low income. So, um, looking at the policies that are available to low wage workers, we see that low-wage workers tend to be le more, much less likely to have paid leave. So that public paid leave is usually the way that they get it. But often when they don't have it, in the many states where they don't have it, they may use TANF, often called welfare, as an alternative to paid leave, that women will go onto TANF when they're having babies in order to um, be able to continue to earn, have an income while they work. But the states where Black and Hispanic people are most concentrated, again, have the least generous TANF benefits, and they're the most onerous in terms of um, eligibility. So the states that have paid family and medical leave also are states where Black and Hispanic people are not concentrated, with the exception of California, which has a high concentration of Hispanics. But the southern states, as you can see, have um, very have no paid family and medical leave laws, and they also are the states in which it's hardest to get uh, TANF, and they have the most onerous work requirements. Um, and Jody talked earlier also about the great resignation and the questions about why people aren't returning to work, why people aren't working. Um, for lower wage people, of course, there's more of a barrier because of childcare, and I think a lot of them are not returning to these lower wage jobs because they simply don't have anywhere to put their children. And uh, there's a great website that actually maps out the childcare deserts, areas where um, more families have to commute 20 minutes or more for their children to be taken care of. In my home city of Columbia, South Carolina, and I can see based on my knowledge of the city, how that maps with predominantly low income black families. So, uh, looking at universal pre-K policies as one answer to the lack of early childhood care, at least providing more opportunities for four-year-olds, we see that that is also in the Build Back Better bill, and we also see very little prospect for that. But it was implemented in West Virginia, ironically, even though Senator Manchin is the one who's opposing um, pre-K and opposing a lot of the spending in the Build Back Better bill, but even these are cautionary, offer cautionary tales. The implementation of pre-K in West Virginia has taken 10 years to fully implement, partly because there were so few centers in the beginning where it could be implemented. And in New York City, when they implemented, it actually reduced the number of slots for children who were zero to three because daycare centers and childcare centers shifted their slots over to pre-K where they could earn more money that way. So families actually had less options. Low-income families in particular had less options for childcare. This also goes to what I was saying earlier about elites setting the agenda for low-wage workers. Wait, what I wanted to highlight here was that the unintended consequences of universal pre-K illustrates again the lack of systems thinking about these issues. Unintended consequences are also a major aspect of what happens in systems when you make a change in one part of the system and don't think about the interdependencies. And so it's something that we really need to avoid 
uh, when we're thinking about policies for lower wage workers. I was going to talk about predictive scheduling laws as well, especially since Oregon has a predictive scheduling law. I will leave it to you all. There is a good report looking at how that's been rolled out. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody in this conference was involved in, in that report, but it just demonstrates that even with these policies, there have been drawbacks, particularly in terms of managers making the options available. On behalf of the Institute and the Oregon Healthy Workforce Center, we just like to say thanks to Dr. Charlize Hurst for allowing us to share her talk from the 2021 Fall Symposium into a podcast episode today. We certainly took away a lot of important information in terms of work being as a social determinant of health and the work-life challenges that communities of Black and Latinx women have faced in terms of equitable and economic opportunities at work and in the home life as well. And, and just a reminder, all of our symposium recordings are archived and shared publicly and available at any time for you to watch at www.ohsu.edu slash Visit the outreach tab and scroll down and find the section where it says training and symposium and save the date for our upcoming symposium. We will be hosting our spring symposium coming up soon on, I believe it's June 3rd on a Friday. And the topic is going to be from the great resignation to the great configuration connecting research and practice. And that's happening virtually from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific time. Registration for that symposium will be up on our website soon. I'll make sure to drop all the important links for you to know in the show notes below. Thanks again for tuning in to What's Work Got to Do With It. We have some exciting episodes planned, including women in trades and much more, and we will definitely catch you next time. Do you have an idea for a podcast episode? Well, we want to hear from you on important workplace issues that you would like to discuss. Email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. That's O-C-C-H-E-A-L-T-H-S-C-I at ohsu.edu. Subscribe to the Oregon in the Workplace blog or follow us on our social media channels on either Facebook or Twitter to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events.